Well, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, page 691 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. 691. After our time is done together, if you have questions about Jesus Christ, the Bible, or what you heard this morning, we would ask you to um, ask those questions. I'd be happy to do my best to try and answer your questions after our time together is done. I had a terrific question at the end of the first service that I tried to answer, and so it was, um, it was a useful moment. So I commend that moment to you. We're going to begin reading in verse 24. We'll skip a section, but when I read, that will all become apparent why I did that. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until a harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together and let's pray. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. No power of death or darkness can impede your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Our God and Father, you have guided us in the worship to you in song, and now we so desperately need you to empower us in the worship of you through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, please come and be our teacher. Please help us as we study your word, the Bible. Help us to think, to pay attention, to consider what you would say to us in mercy. Help us to believe that it is a mercy that we even hear this morning, even as we now thank you for the righteousness of Christ that seals our pardon. And it is for Jesus' sake that we ask these things this morning. Amen. It is said that a few years ago, one of the royal princesses coming out of the cathedral service in England spoke to the overseer of the chapel and said to him, Is it true there is a place called hell? 
To which the overseer replied, My lady, the scriptures say so. Christian people have always believed so. And the Church of England confesses so. To which she responded, That in God's name, why do you not tell us so? Last year in an article, October 6th, New York Magazine, Anthony Scalela, one of the Supreme Court justices of these United States, was being interviewed by a lady named Jennifer Sr., She brought the conversation to the afterlife asking, you believe in heaven and hell? To which he replied, oh, of course I do. Don't you believe in heaven and hell? She said, no. He said, I even believe in the devil. She asked him, so what's he doing now? He says, what he's doing now is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. She asked him, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil His response, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, I mean Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so so removed that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind have believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. She says, I hope you weren't sensing contempt for me. It wasn't your belief that surprised me so much as how boldly you expressed it. I was offended by that. I really was. And so let me just stop for a second. There you have inroads into the modern mind, which we need to pay attention to and we need to adjust for if it's necessary. There is a fragileness in that mind that takes offense to any bold certainties. Why? Because the modern mind has grown up thinking that dogmatism is bad and openness is better. Dogmatism in the sense of there are certain, clear, unchanging truths and openness as in it's it's okay to think what you like and to let it out just as long as you're sincere. Because sincerity becomes elevated to truth. Thinking that if you're just sincere, somehow your sincerity will lead you to truth. No, says the Bible, the Jews were sincere in trying to create their own righteousness. This is Romans 10, to get them to God. But they were sincerely wrong because they rejected God's given righteousness, God's truth given to them in Jesus. Back to the interview. He says, I'm sorry to have offended you. Have you read the screw tape letters? Yes, I have, she says. He responds, so there you are. It's a great book. It really is just a study of human nature. She then says, can I ask you about your engagement with regular pop culture? And beloved, there they go, off into other realms, a seven, eight-page interview, and here we have just a mere soundbite of things that are eternal, of heaven and hell and God and the evil one. Now, many of us, I I imagine, have a built-in reluctance to think about or talk about hell. And part of me, quite frankly, thinks it's good. Because indeed, the, the, the surge to talk about hell and the devil in some kind of sick, pleasurable, you know, I told you so, or you just wait mentality would be less than foolish. There is a sick pleasure if we have pleasure in the death or the punishment of the wicked. Even God has said, Ezekiel 18.32, I take no pleasure in the death of of the wicked. In other words, we would not find Jesus Christ dancing in the streets at the death of Osama bin Laden. There is a sick pleasure in that. And there is a sick pleasure in, in saying to people, go to hell. And using the term hell. Now, I have three goals this morning in the time that we have together. First, what I'm going to do is, is um, tell you that I'm not going to say everything 
But I'm going to say, I think, the necessary things. And so with God's help in your prayers, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the title of our talk. And if you have a worship folder, you'll, you'll see that title. Not that the title is so terrific, but I think the title explained will help us along the way. So I'm going to explain the title of the talk. And then, then we're going to look to the biblical testimony of, of eternal judgment or hell's reality. And thirdly, with our remaining time, we're going to try to answer what I'm going to suggest to you are the two big questions that people are currently asking about hell. So when you actually talk to people about Christ, a lot of times I'll talk about hell because that's part of the gospel. And so I think these are the two big questions. Number one, why would a loving God even have a hell? And two, why is there no second chance after death? Those are the two questions. So I'm going to explain the title, I'm going to give the biblical witness, and then we're going to try to answer those two questions. First of all, then, let's explain the title. The title of our talk this morning, as you can see there, The Reality of Hell in a Postmodern World. Okay, so what do I mean when I say the reality of hell? Well, it's, of course, in part, a response to the growing number of people, the growing number of Christian people, people would fall under that title, that say hell is not real, and that we've intellectually grown past the need of such a place to keep us in check, The belief of hell, hell, they say, is for those with small minds or superstitious notions. And maybe, maybe, you know, maybe possibly the, the notion of hell is for people with hate in their hearts. Because they say there's no way a God of love would allow for a place like hell and a person as the devil. J.I. Packer responding to that. The sentimental secularism of our modern Western culture with its exalted optimism about human nature, its shrunken idea of God, and its skepticism as to whether personal morality really matters at all. In other words, says Packer, a decay in conscience. Why a decay in conscience? Because there's a, there's a low value of the Word of God. That's another talk. This decay in conscience makes it hard for Christians to take the reality of hell seriously. The revelation of hell assumes a depth of insight into divine holiness and human and demonic sinfulness that most of us do not have. Equally so, that sometimes in the Christian church, we've ignored this doctrine and its reality, and either people have abused this doctrine, used it, you know, to kind of, like we said before, a told-you-so kind of way, Or they have no real clear understanding of the doctrine at all. So, I specifically chose this part to say that hell is a very real place. That Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. That Jesus Christ spoke spoke more of hell than anyone in all of the New Testament. We're going to find out in a few moments that it was the constant drumbeat of his ministry. And so... In this sense, we get the perfect mind of Christ. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the perfect mind of Christ, Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows. Why not? Why is, why is Jesus a man of sorrows? Because he understands that many will refuse his love. And Jesus understands where the refusal, that refusal will take them if they remain outside of him. Now you remember when Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and he's just on the verge of the city. The scripture says that, that he began to speak of the coming destruction and he begins to weep over the city. Why does Jesus weep over the city? I mean, because the city will reject him and he knows the implications. So this isn't theater. This isn't just tears to say he understands what's going to happen. It would be the height of hypocrisy if Jesus was just 
weeping for theater, knowing that everyone would eventually be fine in the end. No, he understands that doom will come to them because they will reject him. Which means for us, the only possible approach to the doctrine of hell is with gospel words and a broken heart and eyes that shed tears like Jesus Christ and a mind that's being stirred. This is, this is where my mind was all week long. In, in light of a place called hell and in light of the fact that we are God's missionaries in this world, how can we become more effective? How can you, Joe, become more effective missionaries of fishers of men and women and young people? Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, show us and stir us. Nevertheless, that is what I mean when I say the reality of hell. The reality of hell has eternal, heart-rending implications. Okay, then what do I mean by hell? By hell, I mean the place that Jesus called Gehenna. The place of incineration. The, the final dwelling of those condemned to eternal punishment at the last judgment. Now let that stir in your minds. Eternal punishment at the last judgment. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. John writes, And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And just, just try to picture that. Earth, sky, fled away in the presence of Christ. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there, hell. Hell then is described as a place of eternal fire and a place of darkness. And if you're paying attention right now, your mind should be going, how could there be eternal uh, fire and darkness at the same time? We're going to answer that in just a second. Jude 7 and Jude 13, verse 13 just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 13, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Uh, Jude speaking about the false teachers. So it's eternal fire and it's, and it's, and it's a place of darkness. It's also described as a place of weeping and gnashing, and the clenching of teeth. Matthew chapter 13, verse 50, you'll see it if your Bible's open there. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous, this is the parable of the net, and throw them into the fiery furnace, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so it's that, and it's also a place of de- uh, destruction. 2 Peter 3, 7, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So it's a place of destruction. And hell is a place of conscious torment. That's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16. So when you take the whole of the Bible together, the Bible teaches hell as a place of eternal, destructive, painful, conscious separation from God. Where the three metaphors the Bible uses, darkness and fire and death, okay, metaphors, three metaphors. Why metaphors? Well, well, metaphors are used to tell us, for example, just as heaven is far better than we can imagine, and so words aren't enough, hell is far worse than we can imagine, i.e., words are not enough. 
So a metaphor so we can explain why hell is fire and darkness at the same time. How can, because how can there be darkness and, and fire's light? Well, it's a metaphor. Metaphors have limits. And the human mind cannot fully grasp these things, hence the need for metaphors. So whether it's real fire in hell or, or not, the point is it's worse. It's worse whether the place is with real fire or not. So hell then is the name for the eternal, destructive, painful, conscious separation from God. And it's the place where the Bible uses to describe that place and that state where men and women and young people who have rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ will be put forever after the final judgment. Again, Gehenna, hell, eternal destruction, separation from God. That's what I mean when I say hell. Okay, so then what do I mean by the term postmodern world, the reality of hell in a, in a postmodern world? You know, is that just put there to impress? No. The, the postmodern world is our context right now. This is the world that we live in. So we just want to think, let me give you two examples. At the height of the, the 15th, 14th, 15th century, we'll call this medievalism. There was this wrong teaching going along, that, going along that said if you wanted to be really, really close to God, that you were going to have to ascend to God. That you were going to have to do some religious tricks to ascend to God and get to God. And, and so the reformers came along and said, no, no. God has come down to you in Jesus. He's coming down for you. You don't need to go up to him. Or another example, in 19th, early 20th century, the Keswick movement. This is where the term, let go and let God. I know many of you probably know that term. Maybe you have it hanging somewhere in your house. Well, they use that term, let go and let God, to say that when it comes to sanctification, don't do anything, just sit there and let God do what needs to be done. Of course, that is not true to the teaching. And so people had to come along with the open Bible and say, this is the truth. It's the same thing for us here. The, post, the postmodern world is our context. And that world is increasingly saying boldly that there is no hell. There's no place for it or like it. There's no need of it. And this sermon, in all honesty, is a re- reaction to that wicked lie which, which does two things and they're both horrible. If people believe that, then number one, it dampens evangelistic fire in our belly. I mean, why would we say anything to anybody about eternal condemnation if it wasn't a reality? It's the height of theater. Secondly, and this is probably worse, it diminishes the necessity and the glory of the cross of Christ. Because that's what's at stake here. Either the cross was a senseless, brutish, useless act allowed by God, or it's the pinnacle event of all human history. You see? That's what's at stake. That's why we preach Christ here. So a few months ago in November, we spoke about postmodernism. And we said, just by way of review, that the postmodern mind thinks that God is dead by way of rule. Okay? He, he, he should be alive by way of comfort. And he needs to be alive uh, by way of a safety switch when life gets really, really tough. But he's dead by way of rule. He's dead by telling us anything in a way that challenges our own beliefs and our own authority and our own pleasure. Now let me say this, and this is not meant to be unkind. It's just just meant to be practical. It's typically what happens when people come into a church and they look for a certain church and they're looking for certain things in their mind. What they think they need to see. And that's their first thought. Now listen, that's an important thought. But the most important thought that, comes at, that, that should come us when we're looking, if you would, abroad, is, is the place a place of truth or not? 
That's the first thought. And then your needs can come along afterwards. So, so the postmodern mind believes that what they believe is true. And therefore by implications, and here's the point, they're the authority. So they're going to define all the terms. And especially as we think about hell, they're going to define it in a way that suits them. And in a way that is not declared by God. Which is why, and here's why I say that. The worst thing that we can do as Christians... When we are discussing the reality of hell is to only say, well, that is just what I believe or that is what I was raised to believe. Because at that point, we are playing right into the postmodern mind's hands. They say, I get that. You believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. There's a, there's a poem written for the postmodern. It all depends on where you are. It all depends on when you are. It all depends on what you feel. It all depends on how you feel. It all depends on how you're raised. It all depends on what is praised. What's right today is wrong tomorrow. Joy in France and England's sorrow. It all depends on your point of view. Australia or Timbuktu. In Rome do as the Romans do. If taste just happens to agree, then you have morality. But where there are conflicting trends, it all depends. It all depends. And I'll just add this. It all depends on you. See, that's postmodernism. That's Abraham Edel who died in 2008. But this is Jesus Christ. This is the words of Jesus Christ who was alive and is sitting on his throne. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Again, John 14, 6. I am the truth. So that every thought we have, about everything there is, is to be placed under the authority of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. The postmodern mind has trouble with that, but that is why we say here often, read your Bibles, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. Because only the Word of God can transform us in a sensible way. That's why we teach the Scriptures verse by verse the vast majority of times because the Bible is the only home of the living Word of God. And by hearing the Bible and studying the Bible and studying it exactly as it is written, the Holy Spirit then works and opens up hearts and opens up minds. And those of us who want to understand what it says and what it means and why it matters, the Holy Spirit comes and helps. How could the Spirit not do this? The Holy Spirit only affirms truth. And the Holy Spirit always convicts lies. Convicts us in our lies. So the postmodern mind says to everyone, you adjust to me. It's my life story. And the Bible says, no, no. It's his story. It's history. So that's the title explained. The reality of hell in a postmodern world. That's what I mean when I say it. Hell is a real place. It's awful. And no one can wish it away. Secondly, then, the biblical witness for the doctrine of eternal punishment. Okay, what is the biblical witness? Is this just like crazy talk, you know? Is this the stuff of cults? Am I preaching this, you know, just to, you know, make sure you guys come back next Sunday to scare us all? What a, you know, are people like Rob Bell, 21st century, is he right, who wrote a book about why hell doesn't really exist the way we understand it from the scriptures? Or George MacDonald, 19th century, was he right? Now, it's impossible in one sermon to completely unpack the entire biblical witness. So what I determined to do is go to the best mind in the whole New Testament. And so I want to find out what the best mind in the whole New Testament, the greatest witness to the reality of eternal punishment, I want to know what he said. And that person is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Again, no one speaks more about hell in the whole of the New Testament than Jesus Christ. 
There's a, there's a powerful sermon in Gresham's book, God Transcendent, on the text, Matthew 10, 28, which says, Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who is able to cast soul and body into hell. And, and Gresham begins the sermon by reading that, and then he says this. These words were not spoken by Augustine or by George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, but by Jesus of Nazareth. And it behooves us to listen to his testimony, both because this is the testimony of the Savior and because this is the testimony of the one who names himself as the living and true witness who is the one who has come back from the dead to tell men and women and young people that hell is so. So we begin with Jesus because the reality of eternal punishment and a place called hell has much to do with the reason why Jesus came into the world in the first place. Okay, so you ask the question, why did Jesus come? Here's, here's the, the significant chief answer. John 3.16, second part, in order that those who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And then John goes on and he describes what does everlasting life mean? Well, this life is, comes to those who believe. So you ask the question, what, what happens if you don't believe? What if they don't have faith in Christ? Then John goes on past verse 17 to explain that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but, to, but the world might be saved through him. That those who do not believe, John goes on, are under and uh, remaining under the wrath of God. So, so Jesus comes into the world, not to condemn it, but to, through, through faith in his name, we might be saved. And then John goes on, he underlines, this is John 3, the great tragedy of, of, of the Christian, or the or people, men's rejection of Jesus Christ. And he says, this is John 3.35, although the Father loves his Son and has placed everything in his hands, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son, John 3.36, the will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. So let, let's just put this together. John's gospel. Why did Jesus come? Here's the explanation. Christ came into the world for the removal of the wrath of, of God and of, of God on those who believe and the revealing of the wrath of God on those who don't believe. Okay, again, why did Jesus come? The removal of the wrath of God on those who believe and the revealing of the wrath of God on those who do not believe. And they will not see eternal life. That's John 3, 36. God's wrath remains on them if they remain in that state of unbelief. And so that's the answer to the question. Why did Jesus come into the world to save? And here's the thing we need to understand. At that moment, that is the great burden of, of the mission and teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus, why did you come into the world? To save people from their sins. So all of a sudden, that is the vast majority of instruction and teaching in the whole of the New Testament. So, so if universalism is true, that everyone eventually will be in heaven, then what a mockery and what a sham the teachings of Jesus Christ were. You understand what I'm saying? It's just, just theater. It doesn't mean anything. So then Jesus speaks in parables. And the parables were wonderful. They were, they were creative. They were brilliant. They were humorous. But not everybody always understood. And Jesus spoke in that way purposely. If you wanted to really know, then there was a part of you that needed to ask to really know. And so, 
The parables, believe it or not, the same theme is repeated again and again and again. Some people are going to be in the kingdom of God. Here's, here's those people. And some people are not going to be in the kingdom of God. And here are those people. This is why I read Matthew 13. There's two ways to live. There's two paths to go down. Two destinations. So for example, these are just all the parables about the judgment. The parable of the wheat and the tares. In which the tares and the parable are bound and burned. The parable of the net that catches the fish, in which the bad fish are, are then cast away and lost. Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. The foolish virgins are shut out. They have no access to the place where the wise and ready virgins rejoice and prosper. The parable of the unprofitable servant who is cast out into utter, outer darkness. The story of the sheep and the goats. The same chapter, Matthew 25. The final division takes place. On the left hand of the Savior is a place destined for the devil, his angels, in which men who have no faith in Christ are sent. So what happens is, is because so many of Jesus' illustrations about eternal condemnation, eternal judgment, and hell, so many of them come into parables, the skeptic, the postmodern says, well, you see, they're just parables. They're just stories. These are Jesus' weapons, you know, to, to excite men, to, to show them these things that are, t- that are hypotheticals. They say this is the first century language that are filled with hyperboles to, to invoke strong feelings and to create strong impressions. But it's not meant to be taken literally. That's what they say. Until you keep reading past the parables... And you listen to the words of Jesus as he interprets the parables. And in the plainest of language, Jesus says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. And then you have to say, this is no parable. This is not story time. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, saying those words. So any thought that this is just story time and they are hyperboles is just put away. And the implications for people's lives is pointed out clearly by Jesus. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire in the parable, so says Jesus. You can see it there if your Bible's open. Matthew 13, 40. So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will weed out of the kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Now do you see, do you see how real this is? And how terrible this is? He who has an ear, let him hear. This is why Jesus weeps when He thinks about destruction, eternal destruction. So at this point in our talk, there's no stirring in your heart about these things. And just at the very least, at the very least, be, be skeptic of yourself. Be a skeptic of yourself. How different these teachings of Jesus are than many Christian circles and many Christian sermons. Jesus understands his own parables. He knows that they have a direct bearing on the internal destiny of men and women and young people. And since Jesus loves people with a sturdy love, a courageous love, and since he loves the Father and always does what the Father says, he speaks to them again and again and again. Listen, listen, repent, come to me and live before the time comes when it's too late. So not only does he speak of the reality of these 
punishments that men and women will receive. But he makes explicit in, in the same passages in the New Testament that, that the destiny involves is not only punishment, but it, it's viewed as eternal punishment. Again, this is what Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you enter into eternal life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Gouge out your eyes if it causes you to sin because it is better to go into life as a one-eyed holy believer, paraphrase there, than to have two eyes, to be unholy, and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Again, both eternal fire and fire of hell. Jesus, Matthew 25, 41. He's going to explain what takes place at the judgment. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. There it is again. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. Then those on the left shall go away into eternal punishment. What a dreadful moment that will be. So the very words of Jesus Christ convinced that he believed and that he taught and he appealed to men and women and young people on the basis that without him, without his saving grace, the only destiny that awaits people is a punishing, eternal, painful reality without the living God's forever. So in other words, there's not going to be any annihilation so that those without faith no longer exist. That is untrue. This is forever, and to an extent, we are forever. And so Christ further underpins this. This is Matthew 12. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now think, this is what Jesus is saying. There's a sin of such eternal implications and such depth that it is eternally unforgiven and all the consequences of unforgiven sin, namely eternal condemnation, will fall upon the person who, whose unforgiven sin brings upon them and their soul and their resurrected body the final forever judgment of Christ. Now I don't think I can be any more clear than this. This is the biblical basis for the doctrine of eternal punishment from the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I quoted so many scriptures to you this morning. Okay, so then quickly then, let's try to answer the two big questions that many ask in the West about hell. Question one, why would a loving God even have a hell? And question two, why is there no second chance after death? Okay, why, why would a loving God even have a hell? Well, the answer to this is, is a response to what I've called selective logic about God. In other words, the, the postmodern takes one attribute of God and they take that one attribute of God to say everything about God. God is love. And so everything about God they'll describe as love. Now, that's, that would even be fair if someone took one of our attributes and tried to understand and describe us. And we're not that complicated. God is love, but God is also a God of wrath. The God of Genesis 1 and 2. Just wonderfully benevolent. Everything in all creation, it's all yours except one tree. I mean, that is beautiful. The same God in Genesis 3 imposes his wrath. Get out of here. Stay out of the garden. And marriage and birth will be replete with difficulties. Who did that? God. And your work is going to be toil. God is a consuming fire. God extends mercy, yes, to the ones who fear him. 
So there's a part of God that is decisive in judgment. So when people say, why would a loving God even have a hell? They're only focusing on one of their chosen attributes about God. God is love, yes, but love is not God. Secondly, then they define that chosen attribute, love, on their own terms. That's the postmodern mind. They're going to define it as they would like. They're going to define what love is in a way that fits them. So in their minds, love has no place for judgment on sin. Love has no place for God's judgment on sin. Love, no way God's holiness means that sin has to be atoned for. Can't God just skip it over and make everything okay? Can't you do, remember the show in the 70s, Genie, just make it all better? can he just do that? You see, then you need your Bible. This is love, 1 John 4. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you see, it is then in the cross where we find the fullest expression of the character of Almighty God. This, the cross is where the two great attributes of God meets, the, the, the love of God and the justice of God. This is God being himself. And God always is himself. And on the cross, God in his justice condemns the sinner's wrath. And on the cross, in his infinite love, he displays His love as he bears that very condemnation. That's love. God bearing our sin in Christ. What is is judgment? God placing the wrath of God on himself, if you would, on Christ. So the cross of Christ is terrible in the strictest sense of the word. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, is that theater? Is it just for show? Hell, without God. This means Jesus has become sin for us on the cross. So the holy God turned away from him, unwilling to tolerate sin, even on the presence of his person in Christ. So we can never ever speak of hell, and get this in your minds, you can never speak of hell without speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. For God experienced hell on the cross. He condemned himself to this hell for a time in order that we might never have to go there. So so why is there a hell? Because God who is love is holy. Sin may never be in his presence. Sin is to be punished and this is love that God sent his son as an atonement for our sin. So ultimately, if people go to hell, it will, because, it will be because in the end they have rejected his love. For God takes no one by force. And those who reject him, they will have a place where they might have their way. Have a place where they might have their way forever. Quickly. Why is there no second chance after death? Well, The straight biblical answer is because God said so. But you understand how the postmodern mind can't deal with that. And so the answer to that question is this. God came into this world to save it. This world to save us. The priority of God is to decide now before it's too late. Again, the postmodern, I will decide when I decide. And the Bible is always now, now, now. Today is the day of salvation. Decide before it's too late. And you don't know when it's too late. Because to refuse Jesus Christ any time 
is to side with darkness every time. His holiness will never dwell with sin. Hence, the decision is to be made on this earth. Death brings no moral transformation for those not in Christ. I'm going to say it again. Death will not bring any moral transformation for those not in Christ. How do we know that? Luke 16 and 30, the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is on the other side of death. He has no concern for God. His only concern is for bodily satisfaction. He has no voice to repent. He does not cry out in repentance. And he's passing out orders to Abraham like, like he's the boss of even hell. Death brings no moral transformation for those not in Christ. And that is why the decision has to be here on earth when we are alive. We need to stop. You were terrific listeners this morning. Loved ones, Jesus is here this morning. And, and he has possibly tears. He always weeps when he speaks of the judgment. May, may God make that so in all of us. May he grow us up in these things if we need it. Let's bow together. And let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that in your mercy... You have saved us from that which we deserve. How, how horrible hell will be. And to the extent where that needs to be more and more a part of our understanding of things, then Father, move in us these things and move in us in such a way that we might win those that we know and those that we will know, that we will win them that remain outside of Christ and thus on their way to hell. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things and may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the abiding power and presence of the Holy Spirit be with us all, both now and forevermore. Amen.